talks on psychoanalysis shares topics published in the IPA Society Journals and Congress Debates Worldwide, brought you in the voices of the original authors. We hope this window will allow you to experience the depth and breadth of psychoanalytic thought around the world. This podcast has been created by Gaetano Pellegrini and edited by Gaetano Pellegrini and Andy Cohen. Introduction read by Andy Cohen. In this episode, Fakri Davids and Virginia D'Amico begin with a reflection on the Black Lives Matter movement, suggesting a continuity between the inequalities of the past and those involved in societal racism today. They consider how such inequalities are internalized, suggesting that it results in one's in-group identity being structured as an us-them link with an out-group, in which projective processes are heavily involved. Does the increased sense of vulnerability during times of pandemia produce greater pressure to project fear, danger or evil into the racial others, just at a time when their greater vulnerability is more evident? Fakri Davids is a training and supervising analyst of the British Society, a member of the international research group Geographies of Psychoanalysis, a board member of PCCA Partners in Confronting Collective Atrocities, and member of the Holmes Commission for Racial Equality of the American Psychoanalytic Association. Virginia D'Amico is a full member of the Italian Society, a member of the international research group Geographies of Psychoanalysis, and a board member of the group PER, Italian Psychoanalysts for Refugees of the Italian Society. So, Fakri, I explained to our listeners, and we hope that we will have a lot of listeners because the questions, the topics um, are very interesting and very actual. Uh, we uh, will have a conversation from a psychoanalytical point of view on uh, racism, violence, and um, their reflex on a pandemia. Um, but we thought to start uh, from um, a real actual phenomena, um, from the <clears throat> question of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so we, uh, as a psychoanalyst, began from a view, a view uh, on external world. Um, what do you think, Fakri, about uh, Black Lives Matter movement? Well, it's a complicated uh, situation that we, we're uh, living through at the moment. And it's perhaps worth saying that at this point in time, the Black Lives Matter movement has again become very prominent, um, both in America, but also here in Europe. So it's worth, it seems to me, to, to, for a psychoanalyst to think about two aspects of it. On the one side, there's the external reality in which we are living. And on the second side is, of course, our focus, which is on the internal world and internal reality. So to say something first about the external reality, I think when we see the level of anger and outrage that's poured onto our streets in the last few weeks, in relation to Black Lives Matter and the deep impact it's made on our societies in many, many different walks of life, it does speak to an external problem, a problem that is there in our world and which perhaps we had hoped 
was being attended to and that might, it might go away, but that it is still persisting. And that problem, if you take it back to where it began this time around, which is in America, and the phenomenon whereby black people seem to get killed without any consideration of their right to life, of their ordinary human rights, of their dignity, and so on. I mean, that's the external circumstance that we're talking about. And a colleague of mine talked about it the other day, the killing of George Floyd, as nothing short of a lynching. And the the point, of course, of that is that we had all thought that the era of lynch, lynching black people was in the past. And the mm -hmm. point she was making is it's very much in the present. So if you think about where that goes back to, mm -hmm. that goes back to the slave trade and to the notion that black people were just labor to support the development of America as the land of the free and the great, and that the notion of the free didn't incorporate the slaves. Mm -hmm. And then if you fast forward to 1865, it's quite a long time ago now, mm -hmm. slavery was abolished by the 13th Amendment to the American Constitution. And then it was immediately followed in the southern states where the problem existed particularly by the Jim Crow laws that effect effectively created segregation. It was... Those laws were under the fig leaf that white and black would be segregated, live independent lives, and so on, have very little to do with each mm -hmm. other, but that they would be supposedly nominally equal. Mm -hmm. And of course, what people found, as they found in South Africa, is separateness never means equal. That mm -hmm. means that one group arrogates to itself the privileges of being human effectively, while mm -hmm. the other group is subhuman. Now, it's been a long struggle against the Jim Crow laws. Eventually, a hundred years later, they were abolished throughout the states. That takes us to 1965. And many people will say the position of black people in America has improved. Mm -hmm. And of course, one couldn't argue with that by and large. But the point of these protests is that there is a way in which this kind of discrimination against black people to see them as less than human mm -hmm. has continued into the present day. And that it is now present, but in very subtle and disguised forms. Mm -hmm. So that the official version under the law is that, of course, everybody's equal. But in practice, the way these things are implemented, it's anything but equal. And it's very heartrending then when you talk to black people in America and also here in Britain sometimes to realize what they feel, the world that they're sending their children into is really like, that is loaded with hatred and discrimination. So that's the external reality that we live in. 
so one of the points you um, underlined is there's a level where we are equal, black and white, or uh, the difference in the power group um, is not important. We are equal in front of the law. But there's another level uh, uh, where it's evident that in the external reality, in reality, there is no equality. There is discrimination and so on. And we, uh, as analysts, what can say about these two levels? I mean, uh, in a way, we, we can say we, we all say we are not racist. But in a, another way, there's something inside us that uh, acts as we all were racist, as is there was something you um, called about an institutional level of racism, something inside the structure of society or perhaps of the mind. It's very important. Firstly, it begins with a structure of society. So that what I mean by that is if you're raising a child as a member of mm -hmm. the white majority in our worlds, Europe, America, mm -hmm. you're, you're raising that child in one kind of world, a kind of world in which that child grows up to think of itself as, in, as a self-respecting human being on the whole. When you send a black child out into the world, Formally, that child, of course, is the same. We're all human. That's the nature of our societies. We are all, we live in liberal democracies where human rights are enshrined in our constitutions and so on. So that officially, a black child is sent into a world that looks like that. But actually, what they run into day in and day out are various kinds of microaggressions. People think of them as today. The cumulative effect is that it degrades your sense of self and traumatizes you in quite a major way. So this is one aspect of going out into mm -hmm. that kind of world. Now, the really interesting and important thing that you raise about what can we say about it psychoanalytically it's not just that the experience is horrific, but that if you look at our discipline, our discipline tends to be overwhelmingly white. And I think part of the problem then is, are we as clinicians sufficiently mm. sensitive to what it is like to be raised in the same society, but subject to those unconscious forces, those institutional forces that mm. shape you? That's one issue for clinicians. And then, of course, for us psychoanalysts is a very important um, point too, because when we come across divisions in the world, mm -hmm. we are also called on to give an account as to how those divisions come to exist inside the mind. So if you think of Freud's work on the Oedipus complex, that still remains absolutely valid today, Freud noticed that 
we are raised to be not just human beings, but boys and girls who are going to become men and women. And that whether you are a man or a woman makes a real difference to the position you occupy in the world. And the Oedipus complex is a narrative as to how that difference comes to be animated inside the human mind, how mm-hmm. it comes to have feeling attached to it, it has valency, and they become how we think of ourselves. So if you think of that as the account of how we become a member of a gendered world. Now, when you ask, what does the mind do to the differences such as the one we've just described, that a black child goes into one world, a white child inhabits a different world, although it's in the same space. The question we have to ask ourselves is how does that become part of the mind? How is that internalized? And there, when I went into this, I found that we were not very good at thinking about that. On the whole, we assume that that is internalized in the same way as the things we know about are internalized. Mm-hmm. And essentially, my work on internal racism mm-hmm. has been to illustrate that that's not right, mm-hmm. that the mind internalizes this kind of divide between, mm-hmm. say, black and white, mm-hmm. in the same way that we internalize our, in, our in-group identity. Mm-hmm. So if you think of being white as being a member of a white privileged in-group, and that by the same token, that relationship between oneself as a member of a white in-group in mm-hmm. our world now I'm talking about, yes. is also in opposition to the relationship between me as a white person and somebody who is a member of the out-group. Mm-hmm. That's the key point that I make about how it works. So that so that our in-group identity mm-hmm. is as a member of one group and not simultaneously a member of the other. <laughs> and you can see, if you cast it like that, then this is the kind of distinction that is ripe for projection. Okay. That, that one accepts certain kinds of qualities as belonging to Mm -hmm. us and the inverse we project into the other. So, Fakri, what you said reminded me something that once the famous black singer Ray Charles told. He was blind, as you remember, and he was sent uh, as a child in an institution for blind children where they were divided in black ones and white ones, even if this distinction has absolutely no meaning for these children while they were blind, obviously. Uh, But uh, the institution needed to divide them into black and white. And what was astonishing is that this division, even if had absolutely no meaning, no reality for them in their perception, became more and more real 
in their mind. It's absolutely what you said about the necessity of this division in the construction of one's own identity. But perhaps the question is, if this mindset, as you have very well explained, this mindset of internal racism is something normal, is something in a way indispensable in everyone's mind in order to construct one's own identity for the identification in the in-group with the dynamics as them, as you have very well explained. So, in a way, this mindset of the internal racism is something absolutely normal, indispensable, but What does it happen when this mindset becomes more and more a pathological one? Do you think a social-political atmosphere can influence this passage, this transformation from a normal mindset to a pathological act in reality? I mean pathological act because it's an action, as we say, not something thought, but something that acts in reality. But above all, because some people can act against other people as if they were not human, as if at least They not belong to the human being too. And the last question. We always used to say that in front of war, of conflicts, of violence, of every kind of expression of human destructiveness, destructiveness, we used to say, we used to listen that they should never happen. Again, but what we can see on the contrary is that all these expressions, all these manifestations of human destructiveness repeat themselves. And when something repeats itself, it's the unconscious in actions. As we know, the repetition compulsion is the pure manifestation of unconscious, both in individual minds and in social groups. So what we can do, what we can say as psychoanalysts in this field, and the psychoanalytical tools, do you think, can make something to understand, to transform the manifestation of internal racism in external racism. I mean, um, as you said, perhaps the more the mindset of internal racism can be thought, the more can be recognized in oneself, the less it will be act in external reality. Yes, I think, Virginia, we have to go back a little bit just mm-hmm. to, to think through. Mm-hmm. I mean, the example of the blind 
kids, you know, is very interesting. Because, of course, to most of us who are sighted, when we talk of black whiteness, you know, the, mm -hmm. the color is the most obvious thing. But, of course, it's mm -hmm. not connected with colorness. It's connected with what mm -hmm. defines us as opposed mm -hmm. to them. And that we are, us and them, I think, are opposite parts of the same polarity. So that what defines them is what is not mm -hmm. us. You won't find in your in-group identity, you could, you could, you could equally describe in-group identity as the things that bind in-group and out-group. But that's not how we think of in-groups. Then, then we think that's just mm -hmm. human. It's human nature. So the, the yeah. in and out groups are very much part of the same thing. And I think mm -hmm. you, you have to think of it developmentally. It, it, it comes to be in place, I think, by about age of three or four. That is just before the Oedipus mm -hmm. complex. And the most compelling evidence for that comes from the doll studies that Clark and Clark did in 19, late 40s, published first in 1949. Mm -hmm. You probably remember it. Very elegant studies in the deep South in America, mm -hmm. essentially where they established that black kids identify mm -hmm. not with their own group, mm -hmm. but identify with the white group. Yes. Yeah? Now, the hypothesis was that these groups, these, remember, these are Jim Crow years, so these groups were, were developing independently. So they expected that if you said to black kids, you know, which dolls do you like? They'd like the black ones, same as the white mm -hmm. kids would like the white ones. And they mm -hmm. found, in fact, white kids did work like that, Black kids identified and yes. had preferences for the white identity. Yes. Com I, it's a, a gross oversimplification, to mm -hmm. put it like that. But this general finding holds. So what you see there is something's taken place in the mind mm -hmm. in which the idea of blackness has become mm -hmm. associated with badness. Mm -hmm. yeah? And it's believed to be undesirable. Mm -hmm. by both black kids and white kids. In mm -hmm. other words, you identify in accordance with your societal stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And it shows how powerfully it's got into you. Now, from that, I've tried using clinical material, really, mm -hmm. to study how these distinctions are used clinically. Mm -hmm. And what I found is what everybody else found in the beginning, that they are based on projecting undesirable qualities from the self into the outgroup member. Mm -hmm. yeah? That's, in other words, you split them off and mm -hmm. then you project them into the outgroup member. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, you then structure your relationship with them in mm -hmm. fantasy, such that your what you have very little to do with them. Mm -hmm. And the bit that you have to do with them confirms your unconscious fantasy constructions. Mm -hmm. So if you think of the world before Black Lives Matter recently, what mm -hmm. Donald Trump used was he built on 
the anti-Muslim uh, mm -hmm. currents present within the West following the 9-11 attacks and so on, mm -hmm. to create in their otherness some sense of demons who are a threat. And he mm -hmm. did it the same, of course, with the Mexicans in his campaign. Yes. So that what one sees there is not just a projection into the other, but a, a determined statement that they are other, they are different to us. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, a whole set of prescriptions as to how we are to deal with them. Mm -hmm. So from a psychoanalytic point of view, you can see that it's all predicated on the idea that they are not and they must not be like us. Mm -hmm. So that what I then conclude from that is there's in the mind some kind of fantasy construction of them and what they are really like, mm -hmm. which because they are members of an outgroup that you're not going to have very much to do with, it means that your projections can stay in place. Mm -hmm. Remember, we all project into people all the time, mm -hmm. but what happens is reality comes and tells us, oh, they're not quite like that. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to do mental work to fix it. Mm -hmm. You do the work of mourning, in short. Mm -hmm. In mm -hmm. relation to the outgroup, because they are outside your range of experience, mm -hmm. you can keep them distance and your projections are then in place. So that's one set of things to do with outgroup identity. Secondly, I say that the, when these mechanisms start in infancy, you know, when we project into our objects, but when we use them in infancy, we really don't have any choice. We don't mm -hmm. yet have other mechanisms, ways of surviving. So Klein thinks, for example, that you have to project unwanted content into your bad object. That creates okay. the bad object, and it creates inside of you something good. One would say it's idealized because it's a part picture, but you create something good that is the basis of growing and becoming more competent, having a sense of goodness about you. Mm -hmm. That's how where these, these things originate. But when you do it, I think, at three or four, you know enough about the world and how awful it is to project into your objects. Mm -hmm. So that I think using these mechanisms at that time produces unconscious guilt. Mm -hmm. That's unconscious guilt, not conscious guilt, okay. that, that you deal with through the repetition compulsion. Mm -hmm. In other words, you construct what you see as a more accurate picture of your mm -hmm. object that confirms your fantasy of what they are like. And that's the difficulty with outgroup yeah. identity. So, so the, the big question is, just because the internal racism is something that is in everyone's mind and that is necessary to construct an, the in-group identity, how to avoid that this internal racism mindset um, traduce himself in racist acts, racist attitudes 
in reality against the outgroups. We have to do a heavy uh, mental work. Uh, we have to, as a, an individual, but perhaps as a, a social group too. I mean, it's so it's really easy to misuse. Uh, from a political leader or from socio-political structure, this inner structure that we have, that we everyone have. So the political level has a great responsibility in uh, um, uh, in um, trying to uh, avoid this automatical passage, I mean, from internal mindset to external uh, attitudes in a racist way. What do you think about this? And just to say to, um, uh, I think it, this is really crucial in the time of pandemia, what you said, we are all equal in front of the virus, or we divided in an ethnical group, in in-group and out-groups uh, in front of this collective danger. It's something uh, crucial for our destiny in this uh, historical moment, in this historical um, situation. Um, there are a few things you're touching on there that, I think I'll try and and, and separate out. Mm, okay. Firstly, looking at it in this way, that our we all have an in-group identity, we know that. But what I'm saying is that if we unpack that in-group identity, if mm -hmm. we subject it to reflection and analysis, mm -hmm. then we will find a set of relationships that resemble in there between the in and out group something mm -hmm. that is very like racism mm -hmm. that we see in the external world. So that's what I mean by internal racism. Mm -hmm. And then, as I've said, there is guilt about that. Mm -hmm. So that produces then a cover-up, which makes it more and more complicated to try and unpick the whole thing. Now, if we encounter something like that in the consulting room, then we would think that we are dealing with what's been called a pathological organization, some structure in the mind mm -hmm. that really has substituted fantasy for engagement with reality and which the patient is absolutely wedded to. So when we find that in the consulting room, Mm -hmm. We get ourselves ready for quite an extensive, difficult piece of analysis to mm -hmm. found our way through it. Now, I say that internal racism, when you get to unpack it and look at it, involves these sorts of mechanisms, but it exists in the normal mind. Mm -hmm. It exists in all of us. And that makes a crucial difference. Because it means that we don't have to do all of that extensive work. We need a different quality of work to get hold of it. And for us as analysts, it's the easiest part of it to understand. Mm -hmm. we've, we've got to first 
sort of identify where the problem lies. And in the consulting room, that's dead easy to identify. It's at that moment that you feel paralyzed by political correctness. Mm-hmm. You feel that you can't have the freedom to let your mind roam and have fantasies and have ideas and sort of try things. But you feel constrained, hemmed in by not wanting to hurt this person's feelings, being terrified that your words could do real damage and so on. Mm-hmm. And so you come out with lightweight things that make people feel better as opposed to real interventions that make contact with deeper layers of things in the patient's mind. Now, when we as analysts come across that, we are on familiar territory because mm-hmm. these sorts of difficulties are part and parcel of working every day. And we can realize that the problem there lies not with a patient, but with us, we had the politically correct impulse. And we know how to deal with that. We know that Freud told us, you can't practice as an analyst without having access to your unconscious and without undergoing an ongoing self-analysis. In other words, we have to notice these moments of stuckness. We have to privately to ourselves, say, well, I was a bit politically correct there. If you're politically correct, that Mm -hmm. means you're anxious, that you're racist, and you have to ask your unconscious to help you. Uh So that's that's how I think we we can Mm -hmm. do it. The easier thing is how Mm -hmm. do you do it in the consulting room? And mostly when people get into that, then the thing begins to fix itself. You know, you, you, you get, you overcome that constraint on analytic work. Um, so um, what is really important, I think, is what you said, politically correctness, it's not the solution. Uh, it doesn't solve the problem, not on individual level, no in social level, because it's something like a defensive reaction to internal racism. But um, the question is what you said, to recognize something of this internal racism in oneself and trying to work on this. Uh, but the, um, the the last question I want to to pose you um, is something uh, just in in time of pandemia, as we said before. Uh, we all said in in the first time we are all on the same boat. Hmm? All humanity is in front a great danger, and so the solidarity will uh, become stronger. Hmm? But what we say nowadays is just the contrary. Uh, we are dividing a group against another group, and we are full of fear that the other, the out groups are contagious for the in group. Uh, what we can say about this um, really danger of division 
in a, a situation where we need, as human beings, uh, on the contrary, um, solidarity. I think it's, well, as you say, you know, the virus, in theory, doesn't discriminate. <laughs> but, of course, you know, or we know in this country, that if you are black or if you're from a minority mm -hmm. ethnic group, you are much more likely to die yes. from getting the virus than if you were a native white person. Now, these are, these are matters of fact. Mm -hmm. Research will illuminate in time what it is that produces increased vulnerability here or there, what the factors are, and why they appear to be in one group than another. So that's as far as the fact of vulnerability is concerned. But mm -hmm. you touch on a very, very important point, because I think that racist organizations mm -hmm. can be mobilized mm -hmm. in order to present racist constructions as mm -hmm. a solution to real yeah. anxieties. Mm -hmm. That's what we saw here in Britain during the Brexit campaign in 2016, mm -hmm. and it's what Donald Trump did in America. Mm -hmm. Now that's a different situation. That is a racist system of thinking, mm -hmm. making people frightened and then producing the racist construction as a solution to their fear. So in Britain, it was the fear of being swamped by blacks, essentially. Blacks and East Europeans. I mean, I don't know if you know it, but the the specter of Turkey becoming part of the EU, remote as it is, mm -hmm. it was used in this country to persuade the native English voter to vote against the Europeans who were going to do this to mm -hmm. them. You know? So that the racist construction is mobilized in the mind by mm -hmm. unscrupulous politicians in order to gain their favored solution. And that's different. Now, that's mo using a racist system to mm -hmm. mobilize anxiety. Mm -hmm. Whereas you're yes. talking about realistic anxiety. Mm -hmm. the, the pandemic, the mm -hmm. virus threatens all of us. If yes. we walk outside and we happen to be a vulnerable person, we could die from catching it. Now, that's the real problem. And those who want to use the racist system mm -hmm. will redefine it so that the virus you can see in Trump's um, narrative becomes the alien outsider. That's mm -hmm. the Chinese virus that's come, come in. But that is mobilizing internal racist mechanism, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. in, you know, in the service of a particular political yes. kind of end. So, uh, we, we, do you think we can conclude that racism presents itself as the solution of its own sickness? Well, of course, you can use, if you can, you can get away with it. But it's not so easy today 
because I think the vast majority of people are too in touch with reality. You know, it's, it doesn't mean that in particular sectors of society you can whip this up. So, for example, the idea that it's not a real problem, that it's only the press or the left or the anti-fascists who want you to give up your hard-won freedoms, you know, and therefore you can't go out without masks and go and shop and so on. There are a certain segment of the population that are vulnerable to that. That's without question. But I think my sense of it at, at the moment is that the vast majority of people mm-hmm. are too in tune with the fact that this is actually a killer, you know, so that it's less easy to sell some mm-hmm. sort of paranoid construction, which is what the racist ones are, as responsible for the killer. With some, you will always succeed in that. So uh, I thank you very much, Fakri, for a passionate intervention on the question. And we hope uh, we uh, um, uh, have um, made our listener more curious and interested so to make uh, a second part of this interview. Bye-bye, Fakri. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Virginia. Much. Nice to talk to you. Bye. Thank you.